Today, we are talking with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. We are honored to have him on our program today. We look forward to a very lively discussion about one of the most contentious topics out there, vaccines and Anthony Fauci's role in all of this. Now, listen, this is a topic that really shouldn't be contentious at all, right? Vaccines are a matter of science, and therefore, we should be able to add up the risks and the benefits and come out with a clear answer as to their benefits and costs. But as we now know, or which maybe you're about to learn, the entire field of study is shot through with the same sorts of misinformation and disinformation that infected the tobacco debate for so many decades. In other words, there's good data, there's murky data, and there's entirely missing data, and of course, fake data, all swirled together with billions of advertising dollars and active campaigns to demonize anybody who dares to question the corporate and state narratives. Those are most easily characterized as vaccines are always good. Now, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., he has a BA from Harvard. He's attended the London School of Economics, a JD from the University of Virginia, and an LLM, which is an advanced law degree from Pace University. He's the third of 11 children of Senator and Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy and Ethel Kennedy, the nephew of Joseph, John, and Ted Kennedy. Mr. Kennedy, welcome so much to the program. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me, Greg. Listen, let's just dive right in here today. Tell us, how did you get started working in vaccines? You know, my profession is environmental law, litigation, and I ran the biggest and helped found the biggest water protection group in the world, which is Waterkeeper. We have 350 waterkeepers patrolling waterways. Each one has a patrol boat. They have a full-time paid waterkeeper. And we sue polluters. So we patrol the waterway. We sue polluters. In the early 2000s, I was, I had about 40 lawsuits going against cement kilns and coal burning power plants in North America and the provinces of Canada and, and the states, of the United States. And I, we were suing them. Many people were suing coal plants at that time, but we were suing them by, um, because of mercury emissions. In 2003, FDA did a study that showed that every freshwater fish in America now had dangerous levels of mercury in its flesh. And we were living kind of in a science fiction nightmare in our country where my children and the children of virtually every other American could now no longer engage in the seminal primal activity of American youth, which is to go fishing with their father and mother in the local fishing hole and come home and eat the fish. Oh, we were litigating against them. And during that period, I was speaking around the country and increasingly these women started showing up at my speeches, occupying the front rows. And afterward, they, it turned out they were the mothers of intellectually disabled children. And they would come up to me afterward and say to me, kind of in a vaguely scolding, respectful way, if you're really concerned about mercury exposures to children, you need to look at vaccines. And it was an area that I did not want to get into. I had to be dragged kicking and screaming. But a woman named, a psychologist named Sarah Bridges came to my home in Massachusetts on the Cape in the summer of 2005. She had a son who was perfectly healthy and who had gotten severe autism from a mercury vaccine. He got a $20 million judgment from the vaccine court acknowledging that the, his injury was from the vaccine. 
and she didn't want it happening to other children. She came to my house with a big pile of scientific studies about 18 inches deep. And she said, um, she put them on my front porch and she said, I'm not leaving here till you read these. I'm very accustomed to reading the science. I'm an environmental litigator. I've brought hundreds and hundreds of cases. Almost all of them have involved some kind of scientific controversy. And so I know how to read science. I know how to read it critically. And I began going through these documents and, you know, reading the abstracts. And I was just struck before I was even three or four inches down by the huge delta between what the public health agencies were telling us about vaccine safety and what the actual peer-reviewed science was saying. And then I did, you know, what I normally do, which is to start calling the regulators, people like Anthony Fauci. I knew all these people because my family, you know, was part of the public health infrastructure in our country for 50 or 60 years. My uncle was the chair of the Senate Health Committee. The big institutions at NIH are named for my family, the Kennedy Krieger Institute, uh, you know, the Unit Schreiber Institute. My family started Special Olympics. I grew up in this space, and, but it was something I didn't want to do, but I could, I was able to call these people and to ask them about what I was seeing in the science. And I quickly became clear to me that the primary regulators in our country, people like Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins, Kathleen McCormick from Iowa, from the Institute of Medicine, or Marie McCormick, Kathleen Stratton from the National Academy of Sciences, the people who were the primary regulator for vaccines, either, and Paul Offit, either had not read, were not conversant with the science, and they were just repeating these orthodoxies, or they knew about the science and they were lying in some cases. And particularly with Paul Offit, I caught him in a just a glaring lie. And at that point I was like, wow, you know, this is really horrible. And that kind of sucked me into the vortex. And, you know, if somebody asked me yesterday, I was on Inside Edition, you know, I don't know if they even put the clip on Inside Edition. They didn't put this one on, but, you know, the reporter said to me, have you made a lot of profits from your vaccine advocacy? And I said, I've made the opposite of profits from my vaccine advocacy. It's destroyed my career. It's cost me probably 80% of my income and a lot of friendships, a lot of political contacts and allies, you know, all over the world that are gone, you know, a lifetime of investment that I've lost because of it. But I, you know, as you know, once you start looking at the science, once you start seeing these children and understanding what's really happening, you don't really have a choice. No. And, and, and I mean, what do I say? Thank you for your service. I know the cost has been high. I even saw in 2000, 18, I guess it was, but let me look it up. There was an article written by relatives of yours titled RFK Jr. is our brother and uncle, and he's tragically wrong about vaccines. I mean, this has hit you very close to home, your advocacy. Yeah. And so when you say you caught this gentleman in a big lie and this woman came to you and she, she, she got a $20 million judgment out of the vaccine injury pool, what was the lie and, and how does somebody win a judgment if there isn't well, actual he, evidence? With what? How would somebody even win a judgment if there isn't actual evidence? There's evidence in the vaccine court. It's just very limited. You can't do the discovery or otherwise they'd be dead. You can't do discovery. 
no, there's no discovery in the vaccine court. You can't do, you know, the, the real defendants, which are the vaccine companies, are not even part of the proceedings. So you can't subpoena them. You can't, you know, you can't do the discovery. You just basically have to go in and show that, you know, I mean, what, the way people went in the vaccine court is they have children, they have photographs, they have videos of their kids the day before they got the vaccine blowing out you know, candles on birthday cakes, playing with other children, using language. You know, in some cases, they have hundreds and hundreds of words. And then three months after the vaccine, usually it takes after the vaccine, they usually characteristically, they would get a, you know, a spike of fever that night, would have seizures. And then over the next three months, they lose their brain function. They lose their capacity to, for social interaction. They begin engaging in stereotypical behavior like stimming, uh, headbanging, screaming, toe walking, all of those kind of things. And they can't look you in the eye anymore and they lose all their language and then they lose toilet training, et cetera. And this is, you know, I say it's characteristic because you hear it from, you know, I've literally heard it without hyperbole from thousands of mothers, that exact same sequence. And so that's what, you know, Sarah Bridges was able to go into the vaccine court with videos of her child before and after. And also very good medical records that showed the seizures and showed the cascade of, uh, of sequelae that occurred immediately after the vaccine. And that's what you have to do. You know, a lot of the vaccine injuries have these long incubation periods, long diagnostic horizons, food allergies, for example, are mostly virtually certainly coming from the vaccines. This wave tsunami of food allergies after 1989. 1989 was the changeover year. Before that, kids are pretty safe if you were, if you grew up prior to 1989. You know, they, you didn't see diabetes, you didn't see rheumatoid arthritis, you didn't see food allergies, you didn't see seizures and epilepsy, Tourette syndrome, tics, narcolepsy, all of the lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, all of that stuff began, and autism went from one in 10,000 in my generation, which it still is. You know, I grew up on the spear tip of people with intellectual disabilities, and I have never met anybody my age with a full-blown autism. It just, it essentially does not exist. There's people who have Asperger's, you know, people have a quirky uncle, but, you know, not. You don't see men who are 67 years old walking around the mall, wearing diapers, wearing a football helmet, headbanging, non-verbal, non-toilet trained, screaming in agony from, you know, all these gastrointestinal problems that are, are a part of the disease, non-verbal. You don't see people like that. I've never seen anybody like that. And by the way, it's not because they're warehouse someplace. There, there is no place for people like that. It's simply that they don't exist in my generation. In my kids' generation, it's one in 22 boys. The most recent CDC data from New Jersey, which is always the place where they do the, you know, the first set of data comes from New Jersey, and then they move out to the other states. The most recent data from New Jersey now shows one in 12 boys. Autism is affecting the young and all these other, you know, diseases, which went from, you know, when Tony Fauci came in, 
in 68, 6% of American children had chronic disease. By 1986, by the time we passed the act, it was 11.8%. Today, it's 54%. The catastrophe of chronic disease in our children is a much, much greater national crisis. But of course, Tony Fauci has played a key role in causing this crisis. It's his agency that is creating these products and that is making sure that the science is contaminated and that anybody who tries to do this science is punished. What, you know, here's what people don't understand. You know, I want to say this, Chris, my book on Tony Fauci is called The Real Tony Fauci. And I would urge your followers and the people who are listening to this to go out and buy it. I, 100% of my profits go back to Children's Health Defense. And we need to get, you know, 10 or 20,000 people buying this book. I think we're up over 10,000 today because then the New York Times has to put it on the bestseller list. Amazon has to put it on, which is going to really grudge them. But if you want to do something for the movement, something small, but something important, go on to Amazon now and buy that book. It's called The Real Tony Fauci. And I go in and do a deep dive on Tony Fauci and Bill Gates. It's called... The real Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, Big Pharma, and the global war on democracy and public health. And I do a deep dive on his life, his career, and how these men really, working with the intelligence agencies, orchestrated this lockstep imposition of totalitarianism on not only in this country, but all across the world, all simultaneously. And people like you and me look at what's happened and said, how did they do this all at once? And how did they all know what to do? And it was very, very heavily orchestrated. And I, you know, I lay out exactly how they planned it. And one of the things they did, I mean, the the key thing they did was they did, people know about this simulation event 201. That seemed, that was Gates' simulation that seemed to perfectly predict everything that was going to happen. Well, they started doing those simulations in in the year 2000, before the anthrax attacks, right three months before the anthrax attacks. They did one that predicted the anthrax attack. And it turns out the anthrax attacks, which they blamed on Saddam Hussein, and we use that as a justification to invade Iraq, which had nothing to do with 9-11, had nothing to do with the anthrax attacks, but they wanted to, you know, they wanted to invade Iraq. And that, it turns out, ultimately the FBI figured out that that came from a, that anthrax did not come from Saddam Hussein, it came from a U.S. Army lab, one of three labs, and the most likely lab the FBI figured out was a lab that was connected to both Tony Fauci and Robert Cadillac. It was the Battelle lab, and it was connected to a vaccine company called Bioport, owned by a family called the El Hebris. It's now called Emergent, and it was the biggest producer of vaccines during COVID. So this family, the El Hebris, who are very, very closely connected with Anthony Fauci. They were one of, he was their patron and Robert Cadillac was their patient. And they, you know, they had deep connections to the Joint Chiefs and to the CIA. And they are the most, you know, they were the FBI's suspect at that time. The crime was never solved. The FBI suddenly, mysteriously dropped the investigation.
what they did was they started doing these simulations and the simulations would simulate a pandemic, but they didn't do the things you would want them to do in the pandemic. Like how do you fix the VAR system, the vaccine adverse events, so that we know that when we, you know, when we have a hastily created vaccine, we can, we can get signals to see if it's injuring people. We can compare all the different vaccines to see which one of them has the worst safety signals for the different age groups. And that's what we ought to be. They didn't talk about how do you isolate the sick? Okay, which is the obvious, let's have isolation hospitals. So when an older person gets sick, you put them in that hospital, you don't put them back in the nursing home where they're gonna infect and kill everybody in there. They didn't talk about how do you create an infrastructure, a communications infrastructure between frontline doctors all over the world. So that when they're developing all these different treatments and therapies and off the, you know, and when they figure out, well, the respirators are actually killing people and early treatment with ivermectin or, you know, or steroids or, you know, all the other things that you talk about is actually working really well. Prophylactically, these are working. None of that, they didn't talk about how do you strengthen people's immune systems or, you know, or how do we stockpile vitamin D? They didn't talk about any of the things that you would want them to be planning. Bill Gates and Fauci are constantly talking about how they saw this coming, they warned the world. Really, if you saw it coming, why didn't you prepare us for it? Why didn't you do the things? The only thing that they modeled in that we've now been able to dig up about 20 of these simulations and everyone does the same thing. They pass the message that you need a militarized response to pandemics. It's the only response that works. You have to impose censorship. You have to stop people from talking. You have to silence the public. You have to do social distancing, which is a way of of fragmenting societies, of destroying unit cohesion, of destroying morale. You have to shut down businesses to completely disable society. You have to put everybody under house arrest and and induce this kind of psychological state, which the intelligence agencies call Stockholm syndrome, where the captive people become grateful to their captors, where they empathize and identify with them, and where they reach the understanding that the only way out of it and back to safety, the only way to survive is through absolute obedience to their captors. And all of these were psychological warfare techniques that were being drilled again and again and again. There's a very famous experiment that was apparently financed by the CIA back in the 60s, and it was called the Milgram experiment. And it was a, there was a Yale sociologist called Stanley Milgram, and he, he got a, you know, a lot of volunteers from all walks of life. Some of them are college professors, construction workers, that they deliberately look for every tier of society. And he would put them in a room with a man with a white lab coat on who seemed like he was in a position of authority. And he would instruct the volunteer to electrocute an actor who was out of sight in the next room. And they were told that if they turn that dial up to the red zone, 450 volts, that they might kill them. And they would give them escalating shocks. And many of these people, it was against all of their consciences. Some of them would be crying. 
and they'd be begging not to have to do the electrician, but when the doctor ordered them, you have to do it, they turned it up and 67% of it, of them turned it up into the, the death zone. And what Milgram concluded was that authority trumps conscience. Hmm. And you can get 67% of the American people to do anything you want if you dress somebody in a white lab coat, call them a doctor and order them to do it. They will violate their conscience. And what they drilled was essentially a coup d'etat against American democracy. How do you, you know, none of these simulations talk about how do you preserve the constitution during a pandemic? And I'll point out, there is no pandemic exception to the US constitution. And it's not because the framers did not know about pandemics because there was a pandemic during the Revolutionary War that sidelined the Army of New England, the Patriot Army, George Washington's army for three months. They knew that pandemics could be dangerous to a society, but they did not put an exemption into the Constitution. What these, the people who were running these exercises, and they ended up using Bill Gates and Fauci as front men, but it was really the intelligence agencies. It was the CIA. The main people who are involved are people who are CIA people like Tara O'Toole and James Woolsey and our Colonel Larson and you know many, many others who I name in my book who are all intelligence agency people who would make these planning documents. And the documents that are all about how do you get people to go along with a coup d'etat against the American constitution. And, and what they did was very clever. Each one of these simulations gets broader and broader. So they are, you know, they begin with just the U.S. and then the U.S. and Canada and England and all the European countries are doing it simultaneously. And a lot of them were top secret, so nobody even knew about these things. Some of them involved tens of thousands of people. So they would drill, you know, all the health officials and all the states attended these at various times. Firefighters, police, the law enforcement, the FBI, Homeland Security were all involved in drilling these. And basically, once you tell people, here's what you do in a pandemic, you know, we're paying you to protect us. Here's the way to protect us during a pandemic. You impose censorship. And all of these people who know better, they know you're not supposed to censor in a democracy. They start doing it. And they all think it's okay because they've drilled it. And in doing that drill and participating in that drill with all of your friends and all of your colleagues doing it, it's a sign off. It's a training exercise where they get everybody who does it are to sign off on the destruction of the United States Constitution. And they've already practiced and practiced and practiced it 10 times. And now they're being told, here's what you do for real. This is the only way to do it. So it was basically a way of teaching, of training the American public or, you know, key figures in our political structure. Here's the only way to handle a pandemic. You abolish the Constitution. And what do they do? They got rid of freedom of speech. And they went after freedom of religion. They, they shut down every church in our country for a year and kept the liquor stores open as essential businesses. Well, liquor stores are not in the Constitution. The churches are. They got rid of jury trials, the Sixth and Seventh Amendment. They said if somebody who says they're part of a countermeasure 
hurt you, if they're negligent, if they're reckless, if they give you poison, if they kill you or give you permanent neurological injury, there's nothing you can do about it. You cannot sue them. You're stuck on your own. You're self-insured. They then got rid of due process property rights. You know, it's part of the Constitution. They shut down every business with no compensation, no due process. This is the takings. And yet they were uncompensated. So one by one, they went through every amendment to the Bill of Rights, and they abolished them all systematically. And, you know, they installed this kind of, um, you know, a government, a medical autocracy, a government by diktat where there's no public hearings. Usually, if you're going to have a rule like everybody wear masks, everybody is social distance, everybody locked down, you have a proposed rule that's published, you can notice and comment period where all the public can comment make criticisms, try to make, you know, recommend changes. And then you have 90 or 60 days of that. And then you have public hearings and you have to have an environmental impact statement that says, here's all the science that justifies this law. Here's what we're relying on. Here's why, how we're narrowly tailoring it. So it's only going to affect, you know, the people it needs to affect. And then you have a public hearing where they bring in their scientists and we get to bring our scientists and they cross-examine ours and we cross-examine theirs. And then you have a judgment that has to be, cannot be arbitrary and capricious. It has to be rationally based on the evidence. None of that happened. It was just a guy stood up there, Tony Fauci, who never treated a COVID patient. He says, now do what I say. And by the way, constantly changing his mind, never citing any science. Masks don't work. Now put one on. Anyway, what's the science? He doesn't tell us. Why did the science change? Why did your mind change? Never mind that. Just now strap on two of them. And then, you know, social distancing. If you look at these CIA manuals, that's how they destroy. All of these techniques were the techniques that the CIA uses to shatter indigenous societies destroy economies, demoralize people, separate them, destroy any kind of organized response, and then to impose a centralized control you know, that essentially is a colonial structure. And if you watch, they were planning this for 20 years. And, you know, it goes back to really when my, you know, when I was a little boy, when I was, I was seven years old, I had come back from the the Democratic Convention and been campaigning all summer with all of my brothers and sisters from my uncle. And, you know, he won the election and, and Eisenhower stepped down. And on my birthday, January 17th, 1961, Eisenhower gave probably the most important speech in the United States of history and definitely the most important speech in his lifetime, which was the speech where he said, America will never be destroyed by a foreign enemy. We will be, our democratic institutions will be liquidated by malefactors of great wealth, the military industrial complex, because we've given too much power to this. If we let them keep going, they're going to destroy our democracy. My uncle spent three years fighting his own brass, all the war hawks who surrounded him, refusing to put combat troops into Vietnam. They wanted a quarter million. He put 16,000 advisors, none of them with authority to fight, and he refused to do it. He refused to put them in Laos. Eventually, he was killed. Then Johnson made the Vietnam War our war. He, you know, put in a half a million people, and it became a U.S. war. 
And my father then ran in 68 against that war. And he was killed. And the military won. Military industrial complex was contractors, all this. And something happened in 1988. Berlin Wall comes down. The Soviets fold tent. And we're all told, now you're going to get your peace dividend. Now that, you know, the billion dollar stealth bomber that couldn't fly in the rain, all that money is going to go to the schools and to roads and to hospitals and healthcare and to police protection. And we are going to build a city on a hill. And America was supposed to be the shining alabaster exemplar of what a democracy can mean, you know, to the rest of the world. And you know, there were people within the military industrial complex who heard that and they said, you know, that money, that peace dividend is coming from our pockets. And in 1993, we had the first World Trade Center attack That's five years later. And all that money that was headed toward the peace dividend, the brakes were put on and it started going to fighting terrorism. And then in, in 2001, you know, you had the World Trade Center attack, and it was over. We became a national security state with those guys running it. And three weeks after that attack on 10-4, on October 4th, we had the anthrax attacks. And if you think about, you know, terrorism, it was a perfect solution, kind of a very elegant solution for the military industrial complex because it's a much more reliable enemy than the Soviets because terrorism is not a nation that is going to give up. It's a tactic that, you know, is going to be there forever. So Cheney called it the long war and said, we're going to be fighting it in 50 nations around the world. But it had one glaring defect, which is it didn't really kill that many people. Terrorism since 9-11 has killed fewer Americans annually than lightning strikes. It's difficult to to justify this these huge diversion of so much of our gross national product is such a meager, anemic threat. But they understood from the beginning that germs are a much better threat, more credible threat than Islamic terrorists because a germ can get into everybody's American. You know, the Islamic terrorists can kill one, destroy one building with an airliner, maybe 10 or 20, but a germ to get and can get into everybody's home and kill every American. So if you really want a wellspring of terror in order to justify the imposition of totalitarian controls and huge diversions to, you know, to the security industry and the military industry, germs are it. And it'll also justify, it's also the key to our foreign policy, you know, foreign policy, during the World War II, we signed the Atlantic Charter. We made the Allies in Britain reluctantly sign the Atlantic Charter, which told all those nations, you got to get out of your colonial possessions. You need to let people rule themselves. Churchill did not want to sign it. FDR made him do it. And so after the war, the nationalist liberation movements and the Atlantic Charter forced Europe to leave behind its colonies, which are the major source of their wealth. But those colonies in Africa and Asia and Latin America then became subject to the, you know, to soft colonialism, which was mainly a U.S. project. So we had our CIA, our intelligence agencies in those countries helping out any dictator who proved his anti-communist bona fides. 
by allowing U.S. corporations to come in and strip the country of their natural resources. And so by the time of the Soviet Union collapsed, we had 655 bases around the world in most of these developing world countries. And any country we had a base, we had our multinational U.S. corporations in there getting their oil, their coal, their, their minerals, their lumber, their agricultural produces. And then the walls collapse, and there's no longer a justification for us being in those countries. And you know, beginning around 2003, President Bush and subsequently President Obama declared that biosecurity would be the net now the spear tip of American foreign policy. And of course, biosecurity is perfect because it allows us, it weaponizes vaccines, it allows us to justify our presence, our kind of quasi-military presence in all of these countries. Money flows to the governments of those countries, et cetera, which again, you know, allows the pharmaceutical industry, which is now the booming industry, to go in and do what they want you know, do their, dump their drugs, do their, all, virtually all of the phase three trials are now in Africa and Asia, where they develop these new drugs by testing them on poor Africans, and then, you know, market them to the European and U.S. countries. So that basically is, is are, these are the, the kind of structures, the architecture that I talk about in this book, and I show how Tony Fauci played a key role and Bill Gates working together in creating these infrastructures and getting control of the World Bank, of the World Health Organization, of the you know the Economic Forum, and all of it, and getting basically buy-offs from CEPI, from Gavi, from Bath, from all of these quasi-governmental agencies that Gates has created in order to legitimize his you know imperialism around the globe, his medical imperialism. Oh, what a what a fantastic summary you just gave. I have a, two many questions. Uh, the first would be, I'm curious if there are any laws in the United States against weakening, subverting, or um, otherwise undermining the nation and, and its prime laws. I thought for it, sure that, that there must be, be some laws. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we have the U.S. Constitution, and you're not allowed to undermine it. But, you know, the... the that's the whole thing. The beauty of, of saying it's an emergency, you, it's very difficult to challenge any of this stuff, you know, with a legal case. I mean, we're, we're working on it, you know, and there's ways to do it and we are doing it or we are going to bring these cases and we're already bringing them, but there's not a, you know, it's, it's tricky. What if, we, what if, Robert, what if we found out the Russians were harming our children by the tens of thousands? Well, listen, I've dealt with that dilemma for years because U.S. industry, the coal burning power plants have been poisoning Americans for decades in a way that if a foreign enemy did it to us, it would be an act of war. You know, I mean, poisoning every fish in America with mercury. If a foreign country did that to us, we would have boots on the ground and nukes in the air going after them. But if it's, it's a couple of coal robber barons, there's nothing you can do about it. So, mm. yeah. now, now, you mentioned at the beginning, your book actually has a, a very big subtitle and, and it's talking about actually a more global reach. So I understand the, the threats and assaults of the United States' constitution. My question is this. I was profoundly confused by like, so Taiwan had no problem confronting COVID, right? They rallied, they did smart things. They basically tamped it down. Very smart people, a lot of PhDs over there. 
then I watch this mayor of Port of Elise in, in Brazil, and he decides to heck with all that garbage. I'm going to give my people early access to ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. He has a death rate that just plummets. He gets reelected with 98% of the vote. I thought one politician in some country in the West would have said, that looks cool. Maybe I should do that too. But I didn't see it. Nobody from Finland stepped up. Nobody from Poland. Nobody from the United States. You know, no, no governor stood up and said, that looks cool. How this thing you talk about, how is it so powerful that every single politician basically ignored what I think would have been a winning platform? Saving well, they all have because first they have so many they have such a sophisticated architecture for control for controlling politicians and i talked about some of this you know just now there are many many others first of all you have the entire press that's against you that's funded by the pharmaceutical companies you know are now 9.4 billion dollars annually in advertising and direct to consumer advertising you have the entire medical establishment that is controlled by Tony Fauci globally. About 300,000 people globally who are receiving NIH funding annually. So what Tony Fauci does, he's got, he actually gives away 13 times what Bill Gates gives away to every year. He's giving away, he's turned his agency, which was supposed to tell us, here's where you know, where all these diseases, these chronic diseases are coming from. Here's why autism has gone from one in 10,000 to one in 22. Here's why food allergies suddenly appeared. Here's why all these autoimmune diseases suddenly appeared. We know it's an environmental toxin. You know, genes don't cause epidemics. They can provide a vulnerability, but you need an environmental toxin. So and there's a limited number of things that came along in 1989 were ubiquitous. And in fact, there's a there's a toxicologist called Phil Landrigan who made a sort of a, an exhaustive list of the things that they could be. Glyphosate, pesticides, neonicotinoid pesticides, PFOA, flame retardants, ultrasounds, cell phones. Email. I think there's 11 things on the list <laughs> that came along in 89 that affected people from, you know, Cubans and Cubans came Miami to Inuit in Homer, Alaska. That impact, you also have to look at something that impacts boys mm. disproportionately to girls because the boys, particularly with a neurological injury, it's about a four to one rate. And there's a, only a limited number of toxins, mainly metals that do that. Mm. You know, mercury particularly is, does that, but also aluminum can do that as well. So, you know, we, we, this is what Fauci should be doing, but he will not allow anybody to do that science. What he does, he has 6.1 billion that he gets from us, the taxpayer, and he has another 1.6 billion that he gets from the military. That's why he does all that gain of function study, because he needs to be doing bioweapon studies to keep the military pumping you know, this money into him that began right after the anthrax attacks. And he turned that agency after the anthrax attacks into a militarized, you know, bioweapons response, what they call dual use, where they're developing, using gain-of-function studies to develop, supposedly develop vaccines, but they're actually developing bioweapons. And that's why the military continues to, you know, pull up, to pour money into them. So what he does is he uses that money. Here's what he does. Generally speaking, he's, he's turned that agency into an incubator for the pharmaceutical industry. 
This is a very simplified schematic of how it works. He has laboratories filled with petri dishes with all the viruses in them, the Coxsackie virus, coronavirus, you know, flu, et cetera. Thousands and tens of thousands of petri dishes. He takes molecules of, of poisons or existing drugs and he drips them into that petri dish until he finds something that kills all the coronaviruses in that petri dish. And he'll take that poison and he'll give it to rats. And if it doesn't kill the rats, but it does kill the coronavirus, now he's got a potential drug. He then farms that out for phase one trials, which is basically animal trials and very small human trials to what they call PIs, principal investigators. Who are the PIs? These are the key people. These are the entire profession of virology. This is why none of the virologists in the world spoke up over an entire year. They all knew that coronavirus was lab generated. Knew it beyond any doubt. None of them talked about it. Why? Because they're all on Tony Fauci's payroll. Here's what he does. These are his PIs, his principal investigators. They are the deans of the medical school. They're chairmen of the departments of the medical school, the most powerful doctors in America. They're the ones who conduct clinical trials or the pharmaceutical industry and for Tony Fauci. Oh, he'll give that doctor for the phase one trial money to recruit a hundred patients. For every one of those patients, he gives the doctor between 15 and $20,000 each. A university takes, skims half of that money off. So now the university is also involved in this, this conflict. And then he goes to the phase two, if it works on those people, it goes to phase two trials, and now they're getting thousands of patients in, and you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars that are flowing from Fauci. If that works, they go to phase three, and then at that point, they sell it to a pharma company, to Gilead, to Johnson Johnson, to Merck, Sanofi, you know, Glaxo. They come in, and they do the phase three trial with the PI. So the PI is now making a lot of money. Plus, the PI gets part of the patent. The university gets a share of the patent. Tony Fauci's agency can take a share of the patent, and he can give patent shares to anybody he likes in his agency. So, oh, with the Moderna vaccine, he gave those patent shares to six of his deputies, and it buys their loyalty. So now they get from Moderna vaccine. 150 grand a year each for the rest of their lives. And that's how he keeps everybody from talking. Oh, let's say, so the university is now completely dependent on him. Harvard, Columbia, Berkeley, Baylor, you know, all of these universities that have medical schools, they're, they're getting hundreds of millions annually from NIH. And Tony Fauci, let's say there's a young doctor at that university who's naive, who just got, you know, his assistant professor posting there. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know what? I've noticed that we have these big databases from all the HMOs. They have the vaccine records for every child down to batch. They have every medical claim for those childs. And you could do a cluster analysis and you could see whether the vaccine is causing diabetes, arthritis, autism. Weirdly, nobody's ever done that study. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be famous because, you know, this is very exciting. As soon as he proposes that, the dean of that university is going to get a call from one of Fauci's deputies. 
that says, if you let this clown do this study, we're going to bankrupt you. You will never get another dime from NIH. And that's how he controls all the medicine. They have 300,000 of these people around the world. Hmm. And then the, they work in tandem with the Gates Foundation, which is giving away you know, 7% a year, it has to, of $50 billion. And with the Wellcome Trust, which is the UK version of the Gates Foundation. And the head of the Wellcome Trust is Jamie Farrar, who's in all you know, these Fauci emails. Jamie Farrar is probably, the head of the Wellcome Trust is the chair of MI6. So the Wellcome Trust is an intelligence agency asset. And if you see, you know, you can go online and you can find videos that the CIA makes to recruit biologists, biologists around the world who are going from country to country. They are a prime target of the CIA. And the CIA actually makes videos saying, if you're a biologist, you're studying in other countries, you know, we want you to work with us. And then they sign a state secret contract and then the CIA owns them. So the CIA has 4.8 million state secret contracts with American citizens who are now CIA assets who are never allowed to talk about it. If they talk about it, they face a 20 year sentence. They even admit they signed that contract. They're special secret courts, not allowed to attorney. They can strip you of all your money and put you in jail for 20 years and nobody ever hears from you again. And so Jamie Farrar, the head of Welcome, is in the intelligence agencies. And Farrar is the guy who, in 2005, he's the one who invented the bird flu pandemic. The WHO declared it a pandemic on his word. It killed one person. Mm-hmm. And the vaccine companies made billions of dollars mm-hmm. for to Glaxo. So and Glaxo is the one that funded the Welcome Trust. That's Glaxo money. So, and Glaxo is very tied in with the British government. So you, so those are the characters. You have Bill Gates, you have Jamie Farrar, who wants welcome. And then you have Bill, you know, you have Fauci. And then you have Robert Cadillac, who is kind of the, he's another guy, he's another Fauci, but he was running the COVID response for Trump. And he's, you know, came out, he's the one who, created all of these simulations. He was the author of virtually all of them. So that's how it happened. That's how they did it to us. And I go into you know much more detail, and I think much more convincing detail in my book. But what, again, what I would ask your followers is uh, do your Christmas shopping now, go out and buy this book. Again, I, I make no money on it, all, 100% of my profits. Goes to Children's Health Defense, so you can fund, you can do something good for Children's Health Defense, which funds our lawsuits against these guys, but you also can stick it to Amazon and stick it to the New York Times and the people who don't want to see this book succeed. Uh-oh, go out and buy it and you know do your part. And Chris, thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for all of that. What you're describing, last question, I just have to know, is this just about money? Is that what this is? uh, You know, nothing is just about money because people don't care. Bill Gates doesn't care about money. If you're accumulating money beyond the amount of food you can eat, the amount of sex you can have, the amount of shelter that you need, the nice place you can go, even spending the interest 
on his money as fast as he could. He could never, never spend all the money that he has. People accumulate money because they want power. They want power first over their own lives. They want to be able to control things that threaten them, that they eat, you know, their pleasure, et cetera. But then they continue to accumulate money because they want more power. They want power over other human beings. And the, there's nothing that gives you more power over other human beings that justifies it than medical imperialism. Because if you have a medical justification, you can go into people's most private contact. You can force them to take medical interventions that they don't want. You can control it. You can tell them to only leave your house, shut down your business, do what you're told, don't ask questions, don't talk, or we're going to censor you, put a mask on your face. There's no other thing that gives you more power than that kind of medical imperialism. There's nobody in history who's had the amount of power that Tony Fouts and Bill Gates have over humanity. I would say, no, people don't care about currency. You know, money is just currency. What they care about is power to control other human beings. Well said. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., thank you for your time today. The book is The Real Anthony Fauci coming out in August. We're going to pre-buy that. Make sure we get that on the bestseller list.